We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. I'm Jacob Jarvis and here to make podcasting great again with me is Doomsday Watch host Arthur Snell. Good morning, Arthur. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. Arthur, let's talk about the the most unusual news of the week first that we'll see, which is a former president being arrested. Is it any clearer what the indictment for Donald Trump is about after the, the shock of it emerging last week? Well, as listeners will be aware, of the many different legal cases that are edging their way towards Donald Trump, the one that has come the furthest and the one which will lead to his arrest on Tuesday is relating to the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels. I I think we talked about it on a start your week a few few weeks back. So how is this a criminal offence? Well, he, he may have used campaign funds to do that. He may have then lied about having done that. He may have then falsely uh, claimed it as a different type of expense in his business record. So this is not this. These are crimes, but let's be frank, not not hugely significant crimes. But to answer your question very directly, we don't know the full details until the indictment is unsealed, which is in the American way when he actually shows up and gets arrested. How's he how's he taking the whole thing at the moment? Well, I think. After an initial wobble, because it does seem that he he and more importantly, perhaps his advisors didn't quite see this coming. Uh, there was the full dawn a couple of weeks ago when he said, I'll be arrested and he wasn't. So after that initial wobble, he's well into his stride. He, he sees, as he said himself, uh, the only bad publicity is if you're a paedophile. And he's certainly not being accused of that. Um, and so he sees sees this as an opportunity to do what he does best, which is to raise funds. Apparently, he's already raised $4 million in donations. Yeah, I saw t-shirts straight away. Exactly. T-shirts for it, yeah. Uh, he's, he's already sort of laid out his plans. Uh, so so it's a bit like sort of following a, a, a big event. You, he's going to fly into New York tonight, Monday night, and in, in preparation for the events on Tuesday. And then he's going to fly back down to Florida for a big speech and rally that he'll give on Tuesday evening. So one could argue that this is exactly what Trump wants. But of course, that isn't an argument against holding him to account against any criminal standards that might be relevant. What might the arrest look like? I mean, we've all seen those AI images of him running away from the police. It's probably not going to be quite as dramatic <laughs> as that, though, is it? I, I think there won't be handcuffs, there won't be orange jumpsuits, and there won't be an image of the overweight and, let's face it, rather elderly man sort of puffing down a Fifth Avenue, which is all a shame because that would just make the spectacle unforgettable. I, I think it might all be quite administrative, but he does have to get the fingerprints and the mugshot. And there is the American criminal justice system. And, you know, one might not care very much about Trump, but it does have a slightly performative cruelty to it. The way that these are these are very public events. And it seems to be the idea is slightly to humiliate the person being indicted. Of course, in Trump's case, he he's sort of flipping that and making it almost a, a moment of defiance and a moment for his supporters to come around him. 
Yeah, I'd almost like it to be really, really boring, to be honest, because he, as you say, what he wants is to be able to to flip it on its head. And if it could just sort of show all of his all of his supporters that he's even rubbish at getting arrested in an interesting way. I think that'd be quite a quite a good thing. What does it look like his his legal strategy will be here when he is eventually in the dock? Well, his he has practiced the same legal strategy throughout his life and he will practice it in this case, which is delay and attack. So constantly try to delay the actual moment in court, the moment when you are under oath having to answer the questions and then attack the process. So his lawyers are going to try and strike out uh, the case sort of make some argument that it has no legal basis that he can't actually be charged. Neither of us are lawyers, so I'd probably pointless for us to speculate. But one would imagine that you wouldn't go to the length of arresting a former president if you think mm. you don't have a pretty strong grounds for a case. Yeah, and I'd also say the legal defence of petulance probably isn't isn't massively strong. But as you say, we're not yeah. lawyers. As is, you know, I think he's called he's called the um, prosecutor a deranged psychopath. And attack the judge as well. And and in general, that doesn't cause people to think, oh, I might give up now. But you know, that that is that is the style. Yeah, I didn't commit any crimes. I'm just a massive wanker, is basically what he's gonna yes. going to say. <laughs> this uh, this speech at Mar-a-Lago, you mentioned that. Is there any do you have any notion of specifics there? Or once again, is that just going to be I'm going to do great stuff, whatever that might be, uh, rallying up the fans, basically? Well, I think we, we've got to remember that really from the outset, you know, long before any of these cases, when he was first running for president, the whole tenor of his persona, political persona, is resentment. And of course, that taps into an element of mostly white America that has either felt or genuinely has been left behind by changing economy, changing cultural mores. And so we're going to go back and sort of play those greatest hits. You know, we've all heard about the witch hunt. You remember he used to talk about the Russia hoax again. This was, you know, a, 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 a conspiracy against him in, in his in his argument. But the other thing to recall is that this is possibly the least serious of a range of legal jeopardy that he faces. There's the investigation into the famous phone call he made to the Georgia governor. Do you remember when he begged him yeah. to find a few, I think it was 12,000 more votes, which of course is not conventionally how elections are settled, certainly not in democracies. And then there remains the investigation into the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, where there seems to be quite a lot of evidence that he specifically sought to have secret documents in his possession. It wasn't just a sort of accidental filing issue, which is seems of what happened in the case of Joe Biden. So Trump, has, Trump can spin this story that there's a vast deep state conspiracy out to get him, and somehow by extension, out to get ordinary Americans, whatever that means, but those are the people that he claims to be representing. And I'm sure that will be the, the basic message of his speech. More widely, how's the, how is the GOP reacting to this? Because it seems like people have, have fallen in line behind Trump in a way that I found slightly surprising, because I thought this might be an opportunity to make him look like a bit of a, a busted flush. Yeah. Well, I, I think w what you're doing there, Jarv, is showing a, a sort of confidence in the backbones of the GOP, which I, I guess recent events haven't necessarily demonstrated. And and the, the central facet of the modern right, whether the GOP or the Conservatives in this country, is the, the lack of courage and it's the lack of moral courage. So when faced with 
a sort of flanking manoeuvre on the hard right, Conservatives give in and embrace the hard right politics. And that's what the Tories did by, you know, wholesale buying in the kind of UKIP political arguments. And that's exactly what uh, Republicans have done. You know, they, they all know that Trump is a crook. They all know that he is a uh, deeply divisive and ultimately politically very unsuccessful figure, but they have no courage and therefore they won't stand up to him. So the Republicans are all all falling into line and saying that this is a witch hunt and saying that the um, it's a politically inspired, politically motivated prosecution and suggesting that the prosecutor, who happens to be black, is, you know, a tool of, of George Soros and other sinister global um, forces, which, of course, He's a guy doing his job and this person may have committed a crime and in any normal state, then you face justice when that happens. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Turning back to look at stuff here in the UK in this topsy-turvy start your week we're doing this week. So it's still recess in Parliament. Uh, Because of that, are we going to see plenty more of Sunak looking at potholes? Yes, uh, there was there was a spectacular image of him studying very deeply at a particular pot, pothole the other day. Uh, yes, and I think we're going to see a lot of that and other sort of local politics themes. So sort of maybe it's potholes, dog poo, uh, you know, safe crossings on roads, all the things that obviously do affect the quality of life of people at very local levels. And and what this comes down to is that the local elections, for all that there's been some talk of um, Sunak himself having quite a good run as PM, there's quite a lot of evidence that the Tories are going to lose quite badly in these local elections. And of course, if they lose control of certain councils or or there are certain marquee races that they do badly in, then that 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 is an unhelpful narrative for them on, on the national level. Yeah, well we're, well, we're a month away from those nearly, aren't we? So yeah. is this where we're really going to see the the battle begin? And does it does it feel a little bit cynical to you that, the, as you say, these are things that are really important to people's day-to-day lives all of the time. And now, because we've just hit a point, we've gone, ah, shit, it's a month until the local elections. Let's start, let's start really looking at this stuff. Does that feel just, it's just typical, isn't it? It's slightly predictable. Well, I think so. I mean, I think the other thing to remember is that local elections, you tend to get pretty low turnout it tends to be slightly an activity for people who are either very involved in their local community or, you know, are just politically very, very um, switched on. I'm, I'm sure listeners to this podcast probably all vote in local elections, but the average person does not. So th- there is an element to which uh, these races don't tell us that much. But again, it, it is an opportunity for all parties, not not just the Tories, to try to have a narrative that they can, that, you know, that they can spin, which which is which is at the national level. In that sense, it is cynical. Yes, for Labour in their their narrative, they've apparently got a new a new central character, which is Stevenage Woman. Uh, yeah. Do you think aiming for these sorts of categories of people is particularly useful? I I mean I I 
I can't believe it is. I, I, I genuinely think this is a thing that consultants invent to make what they do seem valuable. Because if you're my age, you'll remember that Worcester woman in the 1997 election was seen <laughs> as the classic swing voter. And at that time, Worcester in, in, in the Midlands was a seat that Labour needed to win if they were likely to uh, win a general election. And it must be said that, you know, these days it's, it's seen as quite a safe Tory seat. Uh, and there was also there was Swindon. I can't remember if it was Swindon woman or man, but Swindon was another oh, one of those course. seats. And interestingly, I think this time around, I'm talking about the general election. Swindon is now seen as more winnable by Labour, whereas it was it was fairly solidly Tory for a few cycles. But but really, you know, the, there is a sort of caricature with all of these things, and they tend to be dreamed up by consultants who live in London and probably aren't very familiar with Swindon, Worcester, or Stevenage. Yeah, I always find they just feel a little bit patronising. And I mean, yeah. Stevenage woman is just, I've got a couple of mates from Stevenage. So that's just what my mates, my mates' mums, maybe. That's about, that's about it. And to me, that's a very, that's just a, a normal person where it's quite interesting when politically that's made to feel like some sort of rare rare white whale to find it's quite, <laughs> it's quite unusual that's no way to describe your friend's mum <laughs> is is anything labor saying going to going to cut through at the moment the council tax line for example do you think that's going to get them any traction i mean i, I think so i mean i i guess the again that there will be the combination of there'll be some very local hyper local issues in certain areas you know there'll be hospitals at risk of closure there'll be major bypasses that haven't been built because lots of major uh, road building projects were were put on hold there are those sorts of things that happen at a local level and and that definitely does inspire voting behavior around the country but yes the, the council tax freeze which i must say again is you know perhaps we we don't often uh, hone in on on labor in this podcast but it's a pretty dishonest uh, message if we if we're really frank um because it 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 doesn't really, when you dig into it, you, you see that were Labour uh, in power after 2024, that they're, they're probably not promising that. So, I mean, there are there are some fairly um, fairly cynical p- political messages. But again, you know, it, it's just as important for Labour to have this political narrative of continued momentum, which is the one that they need, and to push back against the idea that Rishi Sunak is a bit of a winner as it is for the Tories to try to push back against this narrative that they're collapsing. Labour also seem to be pushing back on the the idea that the Tories are the party that is best on crime. I've found the Tories' crime crackdowns lately to feel a little bit desperate, to be honest. But Labour has now come back and said, well, we're going to do that as well. What is it that they, they are suggesting on antisocial behaviour? Well, I think... Um, Again, you have to go back. Uh, so much of what Starmer does is about sort of reliving the best years of Tony Blair. And Blair did manage to combine this idea of being socially progressive whilst being tough on crime. Um, and, uh, you know, Yvette Cooper has come out and talked about how antisocial behaviour ruins lives and that they are the party of um, law and order. And, and they want to come up with this thing called the community trigger. And that's where repeat victims of antisocial behaviour can get a kind of review and then there'll be kind of special measures uh, carried out. The problem with these things is that it doesn't it doesn't treat with what are the underlying causes of antisocial behaviour, which is, um, you know, the public realm having collapsed. There being, you know, there, there's no youth service for, for, for young people who are perhaps not in in other 
uh, productive activities that so, so many uh, so many elements of local authority funding have collapsed. Now, of course, Labour would say, well, we, that is not our policy. You know, we want to turn those things around. But I think just sort of shouting about how you're going to make lives difficult for, for young people who've lost their way, for some people that will feel like it's, it's, it's not dealing with the underlying issue. But, but generally, these things are often quite um, popular in, in the sort of national political uh, field. I just get a feeling sometimes just opening a, a shitload of youth clubs would be really good. I suppose when, when I was a teenager, which is, is longer ago than I, I like to imagine it was, uh, there were just loads of youth centres around and at least I could be disruptive in a, in a particular place. Now I just, you know, when I go home to visit my parents, I think, what do teenagers possibly do? And then you think, well, yeah, probably antisocial stuff on random street corners because what else would they do? Yeah, and I, I, you know, part of this comes back to the 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 whole myth of the big society, which is you know David Cameron's thing, which sounded rather charming, and all these sort of posh people would go around setting up little charities. But of course, what it really meant was let's let's uh, slash government funding for uh, social provision and leave it leave it to the generosity of private individuals. And what that tends to mean is certain communities can do quite well with that, perhaps if there are towns that are fairly wealthy or have quite a, a sort of level of of social infrastructure but other places just don't have those resources and and it's not part of the the local society for all kinds of long-running reasons so yeah I, i'm sure there are large swathes of the country where it's quite difficult for uh, particularly for young people to find a sense of sort of purpose and so on Suella so bravman unfortunately popped up again over the weekend being awful as she generally tends to be she's once again refused to show any sign of backtracking on rwanda why is she so obsessed with this when she can't even confirm when this plan might begin to happen it's a very interesting question now she was confronted by laura koonsberg who drew her attention to a fact that when there was a protest of refugees in rwanda so this seems like quite a relevant case study for what britain is planning to do these were not obviously sent by britain these were refugees from the Congo. There was a protest, and in the ensuing violence, 12 were shot dead by random police. Now, those of us who are listeners to The Bunker and, and other in, enlightening podcasts may have heard um, that Rwanda is a dictatorship that is extremely brutal, uh, particularly uh, targeting independent journalists, but, but anybody else who steps out of line. Suella Braverman, extraordinarily, although this information is contained in her briefing packs, is is has has not be, been able to sort of internalize this information. Why is this so? I think because they must have focus group or other information telling them that if they can break the back of the small boats issue, that gives them a serious chance of electoral success. I mean, that's that's the only reason you can imagine, because otherwise this whole thing is, is just pure theatre. Nobody really thinks that they're going to send large numbers of people to Rwanda Nobody can possibly believe it has a real deterrent effect. So, so why are they doing this? It must be because someone, again, one of these political consultants has told them that this is likely to, to help them in the polls. Yeah, there was that strange moment on, I don't know if you saw it last week, on Question Time, where they asked if anyone in the audience actually supported it and you saw everyone's hands just sort of fall completely. Yeah. And then it seems to just show the, the, the cruel pointlessness of the whole thing because... In that moment, it would appear that, yeah, the people they want to try and do this for actually don't want it to happen 
either. So is it just it's a plan which suits one person uh, being Suella Braverman? Yeah, I mean, maybe someone would say, well, the kind of people who end up in a question time audience are not the same as these so-called red wall voters that they need to hang on to. Uh, I I mean, I think that what's happened is at the national level, the Tory party has, has if you like, transitioned from being a centre-right conservative party, you know, supported by middle-class people to a national nationalist populist party. And, and that's a different electorate. And they want to hang on to that because they, they're worried about the so-called blue wall voters switching over to Lib Dem and Labour. So I guess, you know, that would be the argument. Oh, well, our people weren't in that audience. Now, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's, there's, we've all seen clips from Question Time where there seems to be quite a sort of nationalist populist, uh, you know, slant within the audience membership. So it, it's hard to know who they think this is for. But I, I, I doubt I doubt they're doing this just because someone, you know, in the office thought it would be amusing. You know, they're bound to have some data that tells them that in certain communities, this this is a workable policy. On another issue for Bravman, what's going on with the Brits being held by the Taliban in Afghanistan? So three Brits have been arrested uh, by the Taliban. Two of them appear to be humanitarian workers um, who were there no doubt, doing very useful work. The third seems to be a very different case. There's a, a guy called Miles Rutledge, who is a, a YouTuber. He's a, he's a very young guy in his 20s. And he specializes in putting out YouTube videos about so-called danger tourism. Now, he was, this is not the first time he's got into trouble in Afghanistan. He was there in 2021 when the Taliban seized Kabul and had to be rescued by the British military. So the discovery that he's back there basically carrying out some weird kind of macho uh, sort of, you know, self-image building and then creating huge amounts of work for my former colleagues in the FCDO is is pretty annoying. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future the, the government tries to recover some of the costs they would have um, spent in trying to help him out. But basically, these things are quite complicated. Obviously, Britain doesn't have formal diplomatic relations with the Taliban. So when you have an incident like this, you have to work either through another country that does, maybe Qatar, maybe one or two other intermediaries, or just in a very, very quiet sort of back channel. Of course, we do have communication channels with the Taliban, although, as you can imagine, they're not very straightforward. So this will be creating a lot of work and sleepless nights for various people. But then ultimately, that is the job of the uh, British Foreign Office. One of its jobs is to look after, um, you know, the needs of, of British citizens at risk. But I would reiterate that it looks like if you're a YouTuber specialising in shooting videos from dangerous places, you, you might want to think about your life choices. On a, and another problem here that is definitely not caused by Brexit, the queues in Dover. What's going on there? And is there any end in sight to this situation? Yeah, so of course, we're at the Easter holidays. Uh, and that means you get a massive glut of uh, people seeking to travel on one or two days, specifically school trips, coach parties, that sort of thing. Um, as as I pointed out on Twitter yesterday, uh, under the old system before Brexit, it would take about 10 seconds per person to pass through the passport control at, at somewhere like Dover. And under the new system, as those of us who've done it will know, they have to go through your passport, check a couple of things and then stamp it, hand the passport back to you. And that probably takes about 45 seconds. So that is the change. Now, uh, the additional 35 seconds, when multiplied by the 25,000 people who are trying to uh, pass through uh, Dover on a particularly busy day, 
Um, you, anyone can do the maths. It's quite a simple math problem. So what's happened is, not for the first time since the new uh, systems were put in place, is huge delays, some people's trips being cancelled, you know, school kids who are probably very excited about some kind of visit to France or another part of the continent, uh, having all those hopes dashed for them. And at the same time, of course, Brexit supporters, because part of the definition of being a Brexit supporter is that you don't take responsibility. Brexit supporters cannot admit that this has anything to do with Brexit, even though the arithmetic, as I've said, is rather simple. The only point to add is that this will get worse because there, there is soon to be a, a further layer of um, bureaucracy required where travelling to Europe will be a bit more like when you go to the US or Canada and you have to fill in the form in advance uh, online before you actually turn up at the port. Uh, and just as many people forget to do that and then they have a panicky moment at the airport, they're trying to get their flight to New York or whatever, we'll see that happening. And so I think there'll be absolute chaos when this new ETIAS, E-T-I-A-S system is introduced for travel to Europe later this year. Yeah, that, it doesn't sound great, but you're going to look very silly when Jacob Rees-Mogg finds all of those Brexit opportunities finally, aren't you, Arthur? Well, you're right. I mean, I will have to eat <laughs> eat my hat and various other things that I've said I will never eat. Um, and, <laughs> and, you know, the sunlit uplands. I'm, I'm a great lover of sunlit uplands. Um, and I look forward to being guided there by the great Mog himself. <laughs> they sure they sure have to be coming soon. Looking further afield now, what's the, what's the latest in Ukraine, Arthur? What's happening in the conflict there? So to focus on Russia itself for the moment, uh, one of the most influential pro-Kremlin uh, kind of online bloggers, a guy called Vladan Tatarsky, he was killed in a bomb at a restaurant in St. Petersburg on Sunday. The details are slightly unclear, but there are videos of the incident uh, uh, going around online. Some people say that he was handed a small statue of himself, uh, which then blew up. But this guy, he he was basically holding a pro-war event at this restaurant. Um, and he's, he's very influential. He has half a million followers on his Telegram channel. And as I say, is very much in support of the Kremlin line. Now, this reminds us slightly of the incident where the daughter of Alexander Dugin, who's a well-known uh, fascistic uh, kind of Russian thinker, geopolitical expert, and so on. Uh, she was blown up um, last year in, in what appeared to have been uh, an incident that targeted him. And that brings us to think about the number of these uh, slightly inexplicable events that are occurring inside Russia. People speculate, are they being uh, carried out by Russian partisans who are anti anti Kremlin partisans? Are they being carried out by special operations on the Ukrainian side, or perhaps some other? Um, maybe a, a, a NATO country is doing these things. We, we don't really know, but it's it's interesting to see these things happen. Meanwhile, in Ukraine itself, Wagner claims that it took the city of Bakhmut, the, this rather inconsequential town in Ukraine that Russia has been trying to seize for the last ten months. Ukrainians have dismissed that and claimed that this was just a publicity stunt and that they still effectively hold the territory. But basically, the big picture in Ukraine is that the Russian advance has basically stalled. Bakhmut was really their own, their only key objective. They didn't actually get anywhere with that. And the Ukrainians are gearing up for their own counteroffensive, which I think we'll see unfold in the next few weeks. The the conflict has uh, brought in the the issue of oil production for 
for Europe and Europe's oil supply, obviously into sharp focus. What's what's happening with Saudi Arabia and its cutting of oil production there? Yeah. So if we just go right back to the very beginning of the war, uh, of course, oil prices shot up overnight. Um, and both Joe Biden and Boris Johnson made visits to Saudi Arabia. And we will recall that uh, Saudi Arabia is what you would call the swing producer of oil. It's the country that can change its production levels and therefore affect the global price of oil more than any other. And, and obviously that's because the Saudis, not only do they have huge oil production, but it's all controlled by one company, Saudi Aramco, the state-owned oil company. Um, so Joe Biden and, and Boris Johnson went in quick succession to Riyadh to try to persuade MBS to uh, raise production of oil to stabilize prices. That was right at the beginning of the war. And he refused to do so. And this, to my mind, it was a sort of epochal moment in, in global politics, because basically the existence of Saudi Arabia for, for the last 80 years has been guaranteed by the United States. And it's a deal. And the deal was we keep your country uh, safe from its external enemies in return for which we don't make a fuss about all the nasty things you do to people in your country, but you carry on pumping the oil we need. And that deal broke down when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine because MBS has decided he doesn't need America anymore. And that's what we've seen again today. So the, the, the Saudis, what, but by restricting uh, the oil production, they've caused prices to rise. And, and oil prices had actually been falling for the last few months and, and had, had reached uh, a, a, a a price that was as low as it has been since before the war, um, since some time before the war. So this is just a reminder uh, of the fact that Saudi Arabia is no longer America's kind of pocket ally in the Middle East. It sees itself as operating on a different level. Now, there are those that question the, the wisdom of this and argue that MBS is making a mistake, that he's going to need America at certain points in the future. But MBS, you know, is a headstrong young man has got complete control of his country. Uh, he, he's seen off all of his uh, sort of um, opponents, uh, either killing them or imprisoning them. And, and he feels that he can make his own choices now. And that's start your week. Arthur, thank you for joining me this morning. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. If you enjoy The Bunker, remember you can back us on Patreon for only £3 a month. You'll get episodes early and ad-free, as well as a shout-out on this show. Here's Arthur with today's. So it's thank you from me to Paul Franzini, Norman Towler and Kathleen Butterfield. Thank you for listening. Come back tomorrow for another edition of The Bunker. Hello, I'm Dorian Linsky. And I'm Ian Dutton. We are the hosts of Origin Story, the podcast that unpacks the history behind the ideas, the people and the events that shape political discourse today. And we are back for season five. We're kicking off with a two-parter on George Orwell, the man, the work, the ideas. We follow him from Burma to Spain, through Second World War London, to the writing of his masterpieces Animal Farm in 1984, and how their legacy is used and misused today. That's Origin Story Season 5, coming now from anywhere you get your podcasts. Start Your Week from The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis with Arthur Snell. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich with audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison with music by Kenny Dickinson. Start Your Week from The Bunker is a Podmasters production. 